A couple of weeks ago, we started a new sermon series on 1 John, which we are calling Real Christianity. Real as opposed to counterfeit. And 1 John was written by the Apostle John. The same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, the same fellow who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So this morning we're continuing in, on in chapter 2. So please give your attention the reading of God's word. The book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says... He is in the light and hates his brother. It's still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that this morning as we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. Help us to hear from you. Help us to encounter you. Help us to be overwhelmed by your goodness and mercy shown through your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would walk in his steps. In his name we pray. Amen. John says, uh, you can know that you can know you know Jesus. That this is something we can know for certain. And in this chapter, John gets pretty practical. We've been looking at how in this letter of John, we're looking at a thing called real Christianity. Because there have been some folks who are false teachers, false Christians within the community of this congregation who have now left. Who are now talking about Christianity in a different way. And John is addressing those concerns And he begins to talk about how can you really know if you know Jesus? How can you be certain? And in this chapter, he actually gives three tests, three ways in which we can understand that we actually have Jesus. And we're going to look at the first two this week and save one for a subsequent week. But tests, he's talking about tests. You know, we know tests are valuable. They reveal, they give you data. And 
We've become very familiar with tests during the pandemic, have we not? We've gotten pretty darn good at doing home tests for COVID, and sometimes we don't like the results, but at least it tells us something. Some of you are studying for standardized tests right now, SATs, ACTs. Others are doing the GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, you know, track. And maybe you don't even believe in these standardized tests, but they do help assess. They reveal something about a person, uh, something about what you know. If you claim to be a really, really good cook, and you claim that you make the best chili in the whole church, I can help you test that theory for you. (laughs) Um, If you claim to be a really good singer, well, you know what? We can get you a mic and have you stand up and sing. We can all hear. If you claim to be a really, really good tennis player, well, we can put you with someone else who's pretty good and see how you do in a match. Tests help. They reveal. And the question we're wanting to look at this morning is, how do you know that you know God? And how do you know that he knows you? And John says there's a test. And that you can know You can be assured you know. And in one sense, what is more important than knowing the answer to this question? Because we need to know more than just about God or of God. We're talking about more than facts, information, or doctrine about God. But that we actually know him personally, that you are in a relationship with the living God Because in the darkest moments of your life, in adversity, and in challenges and hardship, in that moment, if you can say, there is one thing I know, one constant, I have Jesus and that he loves me, and he says that I belong to him, man, there's an assurance there that will carry you along. And John says, you actually can know for sure, and there is a test. So the first test he draws out for us is actually in verse 3. And he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, that's not hard to understand. He said, well, how do you know you know him? Well, you obey him. You keep his commandments. And If you want to think, well, maybe John just came up with this, he didn't because he's just repeating something that he has heard Jesus himself say. Because if you go back to John chapter 14, here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's saying simple. John 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A couple of verses later, he says, you are my friend if you do what I command. It's pretty straightforward. It's not that complicated. And this is what John is saying. One of the best tests to see if you are in him and he is in you is if you keep his commands. Verse 5, he says, By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
There was something that marked the life of Jesus that we're supposed to imitate and follow here. And you know what that was? It was this willing, joyful submission to the will of his heavenly father. And no one would say what God asked of Jesus was something easy. He was asked to sacrifice, to set aside his desires, to deny himself, to humble himself, to experience injustice, suffer emotionally, and be beaten physically. And in all of this, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And John says we are to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. Now, I know some of you are getting nervous because you're thinking, I'm not passing this test here. I'm not getting a good grade. I'm only getting a B. I know you're thinking that way. But let me remind you of what John has said until now. John has said faith in Jesus cleanses us from unrighteousness. This is chapter 1, verse 9. He says when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Chapter 2, verse 1. And that he is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he appeases the wrath of God. Jesus did all of these things. And I want us to be clear. Don't forget what John has already written. Okay? Obedience to God doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by your performance. But because you became a Christian. Because God said his love on you because of jesus's performance on your behalf that is what makes you a christian obedience doesn't make you a christian but it's saying but if you are a christian if you're a follower of christ and you have experienced the love of god it leaves a mark on your life something that transforms you you change and obedience to jesus is evidence that christ is in you and you are in christ Again, it's not very complicated, but sometimes it's a little hard to hear. Because when you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, how can you not have evidence of that Spirit in your life? You are going to be changed. This is one of the great promises of Christianity. I know a lot of you in here are hoping for change in yourself. And the Bible actually says it is absolutely possible in Jesus because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You're not without failures. But there will be change. There will be newness. Things that will be there that weren't naturally there before is just a part of how it all works. Because it's deeply problematic if you're always have been an angry person, you come to know Jesus and you remain the same. It's a problem if you are impatient and if you're callous toward the poor, if you can't get beyond your self-absorption and you can't care about others. It's a problem if you haven't grown in generosity. If all of those things were true of you before you were a Christian and nothing has changed, John says, then you should ask, how are you doing on this? Are you being transformed? Can I make a suggestion for us in terms of encouragement? You know, oftentimes we have a hard time seeing some of these changes that are taking place in us because they're so incremental. But when you see this happen in someone in your community group, someone who's your friend, you know, 
when you're able to see it, let them know. Let them know, you know what? You seem really at peace, although things didn't go your way. In the past, you would have been so discouraged. But there's something different in you. Or you could let someone know, I was so surprised pleasantly to see you exercise so much self-control. You would get so angry in those situations in the past. I've seen you lose your cool. But God is up to something in your life. You know, as I've been looking at this passage, here's the dilemma I face as a pastor because there's at least two different groups in this audience. Some of you are super tender-hearted. You have a tender conscience. And you hear these verses and you think, oh no, I'm not a Christian because I'm so disobedient. How can I belong to God? I don't pray, on, pray enough. My heart is just so distant. It feels absolutely nothing. I should be doing more. I feel like a spiritual failure. Some of you are dealing with your own pet sins and your addiction. And you're trying to shake it and you hate it. That it has grip of power on you. You're doing better, but you still struggle. And you hate that you keep going back to that place. And you beg God to take away these things. And you have your good days and you have your hard days. That's one audience. Those of you who are tenderhearted. There are others of you in here that are actually really hard-hearted. You're callous. You know, you're lukewarm to God, but it really doesn't mean a whole lot to you that you are. Because you say, well, so what? Everyone else seems to be. I enjoy my sin and God loves to forgive. It's a good relationship here. You're unmoved. You're not troubled by your sin. There's obvious, clear disobedience in your life. And you just brush it away with everyone does it and you write it off. And you might feel secure. And this passage is saying, maybe you shouldn't be. For those of you with tender consciences, let me say this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember those words. No condemnation. You didn't make yourself a Christian. He found you. He claimed you. He adopted you. He's never going to let you go. He may let you wander from him and allow you to experience the consequences of your decisions. But he has you because our God is a good shepherd. A good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. The story of Christianity is about the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. It's not a story about good sheep who go looking for a shepherd. But if you have a tender heart, hey, rejoice in your Savior because he came and did everything you and I could never have done. You know, and this is why John takes this aside here from verses 12 to 14 as he's writing. Did you notice it kind of interrupts this narrative of the letter? And all of a sudden he breaks out into, I am writing to you little children. I am writing to you fathers. I am writing to you young men. And he does this six times in the span of three verses. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to talk to those with tender consciences to say what? Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. You know God from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. He's saying, don't forget these things are true of you. 
And the little children, the fathers, the young men, they all kind of represent different places someone has had in their spiritual journey. You may be young. You may be kind of a young man. You may be a father. And he's saying, wherever you are, know that these things are true. But if you have a hard heart, and you have a heart that blows off God's laws, and you just don't care, and you claim to follow Jesus, John has a word for you. In verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's harsh. But he's saying it's a test. Why is obedience a test? Have you thought about that? Because if you've been impacted by an encounter with Jesus and his love, and if you've experienced his forgiving love, you begin to see something about the commands of God, the word of God, his laws for us. You begin to realize, as we said during the Ten Commandments series, that these are given to us so that we would have life, that we would flourish. And God is saying, you've got to trust me. I'm the one who is willing to give up my one and only son for you. Why would you not trust what I am telling you? And his desire and his call to obey him comes from a loving heart. See? And why does he give us these laws again? Because he wants us to flourish. And when we go against this, man, it's as if God is saying, I feel how much you don't trust me. It feels very personal to him in many ways. Because we're telling God, who has given us all things, I don't know if I trust you. Even though you've given me everything, the most precious thing, your one and only son. And, God, and John here is saying, have you experienced this? Because when that happens, obedience becomes something you grow in. And it becomes something you begin to delight in. And it doesn't become drudgery over time. Yes, it's hard. But you begin to say, no, but I begin to trust that my heavenly father has something good for me. And there's transformation. Transformation because you've encountered Jesus. You know, I know many of you have seen the musical Les Miserables. But the book, uh, Les Miserables, that Victor Hugo wrote is... um, much more in-depth in so many ways. And in the early chapters of that book, we're introduced to Jean Valjean, who is in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, if you remember the story. Five years for stealing it, 14 more for trying to escape. And at his release, he's a man who is utterly bitter, angry, he's hungry, he's marked as an ex-con, he can't get a room to stay in. And all of a sudden, he experiences the hospitality of the bishop, Monsignor Bienvenu, who welcomes him in, who feeds him a place to stay in his house for the night. But in the middle of the night, Valjean decides to steal silver spoons and forks from the dining room and takes off. But the police stop him because they see this guy with silverware. And given his appearance, it looks like he probably stole it. Valjean says it was given to him by a bishop. They said, well, let's go talk to him and verify your story. And when he walks in, the bishop, understanding what has taken place, says, Valjean, you have forgotten these two silver candlesticks, which are much more valuable 
than the spoons and the forks. The bishop confirms the story that he has given these things to Valjean and the police leave in disbelief. And the bishop leans over and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw from dark thoughts and I give it to God. And this begins a struggle within him as he experiences grace and kindness. But change doesn't come right away like it does in the musical. But actually, he leaves the bishop. He goes on the road and he meets a 10-year-old boy. I don't know if you remember this part of the story. Little Petit Gervais. And he has a bunch of coins in his pocket, maybe a dollar or two of our modern-day equivalent of money. And he takes this money from a 10-year-old kid. The child's in tears and yelling at Valjean, saying, give me back my money. It's all he had. And heartless Valjean just tells him basically to get lost, and the kid leaves crying. And he remembers all of a sudden, Valjean, the kindness and the forgiveness he received from the bishop and his words, you no longer belong to evil. And his conscience is pricked. He goes out looking for the child to return the money, but he can't find him. And listen to what Victor Hugo writes. He says, Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He wept burning tears. And as he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul. An extraordinary light. A light at once ravishing and terrible. His past life, his first fault... His external brutishness, his internal harshness. What had happened to him at the bishops, the last thing that he had done, the theft from a child, a crime, all the more cowardly and all the more monstrous since it had come after the bishop's pardon. All this recurred to his mind and appeared clearly to him, but with a clearness which he had never hitherto witnessed. He examined his life, and it seemed horrible to him. His soul, and it seemed frightful to him. In the meantime, a gentle light rested over his life and this soul. And I love these final few sentences of the chapter. How many hours did he weep thus? What did he do after he had wept? Where did he go? No one ever knew. The only thing which seems to be authenticated is that that same night, about three o'clock in the morning, a man saw as he traversed the streets in which the bishop's residence was situated, a man in the attitude of prayer, kneeling on the pavement in the shadow in front of the door of the bishop. You see, when you experience grace, mercy, and forgiveness, you cannot say the same. This is the point of the story. This is the point at which the story begins for Valjean and he is transformed. His life is transformed. And in many of the same ways, when you encounter Jesus in this way, you cannot but begin to obey in some way. It may be quick for some of you. It may be slower, but it will always be there. That's the first test John tells us about. The second test is love. Not only obedience, but love. If you've experienced love, you will be loving. It will be evident in your life. How do you know him? Verses 9, 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. He says a little later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, if you know God and he knows you, you're going to love. And this is not a love you can produce. It's something extraordinary. It's something that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's something outside of you. And John says, you know, this is in one sense an old commandment. You see that in verse 7. And then he goes on to say, but it is also a new one. It is old because it's been told in the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love the poor, the vulnerable, your family, foreigners among you. This is an old commandment. But then what about this is new? What about it is new? Because Jesus, I mean, no one has loved like Jesus. See, think of the breadth of Jesus' love. Because he's the one that said, don't just love those who've been good to you. Those who are of your tribe, your family, those you're comfortable with, those who make you feel good about yourself. But Jesus comes along and says, I actually want you to love your enemies. And he tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. I want you to love people you have naturally seen as your enemies. Where hostility has reigned for generations. And I want you to love those who will curse you and harm you. Love your enemies. No one has ever said this or taught this before Christ. This is a new commandment. You know, that's the breadth of it. Think about the depth of it. The depth of Jesus' love. It's so unique because no one has ever sacrificed like Jesus Christ. No one has ever left heaven and came to earth. No one has left security, glory, honor, joy, set aside all of that and humbled himself so that he would be hated, reviled, humiliated, mocked, abused, cursed. No one went to hell for love except Jesus, right? You know, in the beginning of the Bible, God told Adam, if you keep all of my commandments perfectly, what did he say? You're going to live forever. And God says to Jesus, if you keep all of my commandments, you're going to be crucified. Where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one has done what Jesus has done. No one has paid a price for love like Jesus did. Now, if you've experienced that, something no one else can give you, something you can't produce in yourself, it has the power to change you. It has the power that enables us to love and to walk like Jesus. Walk like Jesus. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not even sure if you can buy any of this story about who Jesus is, you know, do you realize that there is no love like the love I just described? It just doesn't exist in the world. Because if you don't believe the creator of the universe has left all of these things in order to suffer and to die, then you and I are actually resigned to believe that no one can love us like that and that it is impossible to love in that way. 
I actually think it's impossible because it is supernatural. It's not something we can do. You can't give away something and love something when you yourself have not experienced that. And if that kind of love doesn't exist, and we can't experience it in this world, we won't be able to live out this kind of extraordinary love that our world actually needs. But the Bible says it does exist. We can see it. We can experience it. You know, June 17, 2015 was a very typical night at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It's one of the oldest black churches in America. And a Bible study was taking place, as they did for a very long time, when a young white man walked into the church. Those in the Bible study welcomed him in. They accepted him, showed him kindness. They studied the Bible together. And before he left, he pulled out a gun and killed nine African-American congregants. And what was remarkable about what took place over the next few days when they brought the perpetrator into the courtroom and had him arraigned was the response of the families of the victims at this hearing. You may remember some of this, but uh, I went back and I pulled out a few quotes here. It says, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Land, she said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me, but I forgive you. It hurts me. You hurt a lot of people, but may God forgive you. One survivor of the shooting who was actually in the room said, we welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. I will never be the same. But as they say in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on your soul. Anthony Thompson is a grandson of one of the victims, said, we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. So we can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you will be okay. Where did they ever get the idea to go do this? It's not in the heart of man to do something like this. For all of human history, we've always understood it as what? An eye for an eye. We lash out at those who hurt us. But they said, hey, we want you to experience forgiveness. Where, it's astounding, it's, it's amazing. Where does this come from? It comes from Christ who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I mean, having received this love, it is a love that comes out of them. And love begets love. This is why it's a test. You see, it's not a test of knowledge and information. It's a test of have you actually encountered Jesus in a way where your life is actually transformed and it just kind of, you know what? You get poked and it just like oozes out of you. Something beautiful because you've encountered and experienced something good. Because love fell on us. You see, this is what John is pointing to when he's saying, how do you know real Christianity? You see it. 
in the lives of the people in the congregation. You see it in the transformation that is taking place. You see it as we live this out together. And we see it as we point each other to the beauty of Jesus. Friend, one of the, this is one of the most remarkable things and the greatest things about Christianity. John is saying, you can know you have this. That assurance is absolutely possible. And again, for those of you with tender consciences, this is an opportunity for you to say, I need to look closely at what Jesus has done for me. And this isn't about what I need to do more of. That'll take care of itself once you're in a deeper relationship with Jesus. And for those of you who are are hearing all this and it's just one more story you hear on a Sunday morning and it's just, okay, that's fine, that's great. All right, I need to hurry up, go home, watch some football or watch the U.S. Open, whatever needs to happen. You know, it's, hey, I know those days exist, but if that is every week, I think God is saying, well, maybe you should... Take a look at the results of your test. And God invites you to say, come, rekindle that relationship if you've had one. If you're here and you're not sure if you can believe all of this, Jesus is saying, this is what I'm offering you. Would you like to come and have a relationship with me? And that invitation is one. He says, come and know my love and my forgiving grace in your life. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning um, you would allow us to reflect on these tests that you leave before us and assess where we are with you. And as we do so, may we not forget the beauty of what you have proclaimed to us, something that is true, that our Lord Jesus actually lived and died on our behalf. May that truth work so deeply down into our hearts that it would transform every aspect of who we are so that we would go out to follow you in your footsteps, to honor you. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.